We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Good morning, everyone. We are so pleased uh, that you are here this morning with us to be able to have a discussion around human trafficking prevention education in schools. Um, you are in for a treat. We are joined by an amazing panel of um, collaborators and uh, warriors in this fight um, against human trafficking and really to protect our students. So um, I'm going to introduce myself briefly and then let our panelists introduce themselves as well and tell you where they um, are calling in from this morning. My name is Ashley Bryant. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Three Strands Global Foundation. We have been doing work preventing human trafficking in schools for 14 years, um, really focusing on protecting our students and making sure our teachers and staff are empowered. Um, so Monica, you're to my right. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Uh, hi, good morning. My name is Monica Dominguez. I'm the district coordinator for school counseling in the Socorro Independent School District here in El Paso, Texas. Great. Charisma. Good morning, everybody. My name is Charisma De Los Reyes, and I am the program coordinator for San Diego County Office of Education's Foster Youth Services Coordinating Program. And Cynthia. Good morning. My name is Cynthia Cook. I work for Three Strands Global Foundation and I'm located in Northern California. I just want to say thank you to everyone at EdWeb and especially Lisa um, for inviting us to participate um, in this deep conversation today around human trafficking. It really is um, something that we want to make sure that those of you who are listening have an understanding of not only what human trafficking is, but also more importantly, how are we protecting our students um, in our schools? So first, we want to make sure to take a poll. And um, this very first poll that we'd like for you to take really helps us to understand who's in the room. Um, if you are administrator, teacher, counselor, school, school support staff, or other, just go ahead and let us know that. And um, we will uh, just real quickly know who's in the room. And that helps us as we are um, getting our answers together for all of you. Great. Great. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Um, so I'm going to go on to the, the next slide um, as we've got um, a lot to cover and I want to make sure and get through all of this today. Uh, we're going to go through um, the issue. We're going to go through the need for prevention education and we're going to talk about best practices. Um, and as you watch the slides and listen to us, you'll see those icons as we go. And if you want to go back and refer to them, feel free because um, you can see the sections that we're talking about. So let's um, let's talk about the issue. Um, let's really set the tone for what is um, human trafficking. And I think it's important when we talk about human trafficking that we define it um, as this umbrella term. Um, there are really two parts of human trafficking that we monitor in the United States. One is what we call commercial sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. And the other is uh, forced labor or labor trafficking. So the National Trafficking Hotline in Washington, D.C. Um, monitors incidents, calls that come into the hotline for those two 
um, trafficking incidents, labor trafficking or sex trafficking. Um, and I really like this morning for our panel to spend a little bit of time um, just answering the question, a couple of questions. Cynthia, I point to you first. Um, I know that um, the, the definition of human trafficking actually is, is long, but we really in the movement focus in on is it sex trafficking or labor trafficking? But share with us a little bit about the three words that prosecutors really look for um, when they are um, thinking about this crime, human trafficking, and why that's important for us as educators and education staff to understand as well. Thank you, Ashley. That is coercion, force, and fraud. So coercion, think about that as someone is convincing you to do something, and it's a manipulative term. And I want you to think about that. Um, they benefit somehow from doing that. When it comes to force, that's pretty obvious. They can threaten harm or um, anything like that to you or your family. And when it happens to be uh, fraud, it's really kind of bait and switch is the way I would describe it. In other words, they suggest that they have a job for you where you will earn money and then it ends up that you don't earn any. Thanks, Cynthia. Um, Chrisma, will you speak to us? You know, this this part, we want to get everybody on the same page, right? Um, sometimes um, human trafficking, the definition can be so long and misunderstood um, that we want to make sure people understand. So in San Diego specifically, give us a few examples of what this might look like in our schools. <clears throat> so actually, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2014 in San Diego, we had actually a very large uh, federal case <clears throat> excuse me, where um, there was actually a gang that was um, enrolling children who could still be enrolled in school. And they were there solely for the um, purpose of recruiting other students. And so, um, you know, we, us, those of us in the field, uh, I was a social worker back then, and um, it really confirmed what we were already seeing when it came to the um, exploitation of children. And then another regional study done here also in San Diego noted um, that 20 different high schools that were interviewed through um, in our county found that there was about 90% had recognized some form of recruitment or trafficking happening in their schools. Yeah, thanks, Charisma. Sobering, super sobering. Um, and Monica, I think that, you know, as you come um, to us from Texas. And as we think about, you know, all of us getting on the same page of the same book, right? What does human trafficking look like? And for those who are listening, really helping them understand better that context. Is there something you can share with us about Texas and specifically Socorro ISD that you know um, that you guys have experienced um, for the, our listeners to understand? Um, like I said earlier, um, I'm from Socorro ISD, um, which is located in El Paso, Texas. Um, we're at the very tip of West Texas, the border between New Mexico and Mexico. And so um, in this area, we do see a lot of human smuggling cases that technically sometimes lead to that human trafficking. But what we see in our schools, um, as a school counselor, I remember clearly um, a case about seven years ago where um, as a school counselor at that campus, I didn't have that awareness where a 13-year-old male um, coming into school from Mexico, uh, many times um, parents in Mexico send their kids to get an education here in the state, which is um, typically normal. Um, 
for our families in this community. Um, but we noticed this 13 year old, um, he was living with an uncle while parents are back in Mexico, attending school, um, doing really well. Um, but we noticed the start of decline of grades, um, disheveled when coming into school, um, increase of absences and tardies, um, and started noticing um, some of those red flags. Um, when talking to teachers um, and also friends of him, we later found out that his uncle was um, having him distribute drugs out on the streets. Um, he was also a victim of sexual abuse. Um, later to find out that he was being threatened by the uncle of, you know, possibly being deported, not finishing his education in the United States. And so those are some of the cases that we might see um, here in some of the campuses that we have here in Socorro ISD. Yeah, thanks, Monica, for that. And I think that that's really important because oftentimes what this panelist um, knows, every, all of us know on this panel, is that human trafficking is often seen as charisma shared within gang violence, mainly within gangs. And as Monica just shared, too, that it could be um, that we have um, children who are being trafficked by another family member, right, or are being abused by another family member, or abuse happens. We see a lot of vulnerable populations um, where trafficking is um, the form, um, the crime that happens to them. It is the abuse that happens as well. Um, I, I think that what I want to make sure is we all um, understand that, you know, forced labor and commercial sexual exploitation for now, and we'll call it sex trafficking. Those are the two that the National Trafficking Hotline monitors. Um, that happens in all of our states. And so I have this poll question here that I'd love for you guys to answer. Um, is How is it in your school, in your district, have you actually seen human trafficking? Um, do you know of incidents in human trafficking um, at your campus? And the reason that we ask this question, um, and we'll ask this next poll question as well, is that we want to see and understand um, for us as we're talking today is not only the, the knowledge that you all have of human trafficking, but also um, in our next um, poll, it, this is, um, has it happened in your family? Is there someone, family, friends, colleagues that you know that you can say, um, yes, I know of an incident of human trafficking? Um, within those communities. And oftentimes we talk about human trafficking as a crime that hides in plain sight. Um, what that means is we don't always know that human trafficking is, is actually occurring uh, and it's not right in front of us sometimes. Um, you know, what's portrayed in the media is not actually what we see often in our schools. Um, and, and we wanna cover that in our next bit here. Um, one of the things that um, Charisma and Monica and Cynthia, all of us feel very strongly about is that we want to make sure that we don't have, um, that we're accurate and that we are, um, with that accuracy comes um, an understanding of trauma that might happen to our students and that we don't sensationalize um, what um, is happening around human trafficking because it doesn't help our students or um, our staff to be able to recognize or identify human trafficking on our campuses. So there are three um, parts on this slide right here, and I'd love for our panelists to be able to just jump in and, and answer um, when maybe each of you a little of each of these. But I, I think it's important, as we know um, in this movement, that sensationalism can really take us off target, right? When we know human trafficking is forced labor and sex trafficking, 
We want to make sure that we not only understand the force, fraud, and coercion component, but the coercion and the fraud are really important. And so if we sensationalize things only being um, force, for example, which we know most cases are not, then um, then we do our students a disservice. So um, Monica and Charisma and Cynthia, I'd love for you guys to um, pick one of these and really speak to. Maybe, um, Charisma, you go first with the communities. You know, what, what is it within the communities that they struggle to identify someone um, if they're sensationalism? Um, <clears throat> Ashley, uh, you had mentioned it, right, that it really is dangerous because we tend to overlook the obvious sometimes, right? So when we're looking for things like chains and <clears throat> dark rooms and, you know, things like that, the reality of our what our students are experiencing is certainly not that. A lot of children are actually still going to school and are being trafficked on the weekends. And so, you know, uh, truancies, um, long absences where families, teachers, uh, concerned neighbors have no idea where the child is, even just for that short period of time, it really should make us stop and think, what is happening in this child's world um, where there's just these behaviors? We may not know exactly yet, but we need to be curious enough and care enough to ask um, hard questions and brave questions and create environments that are safe enough for our children to be able to hopefully disclose whatever it is that they're experiencing. And even if it isn't trafficking, um, but there certainly are certain risk factors when clustered together that if there is one more runaway episode, if there is one more missing child episode, that child could certainly become a first time victim of trafficking. And so I really would say um, the danger of sensationalism is that we will tend to only look for what appears to be extreme or, or very Hollywood like. Yeah, excellent. That's such, thank you so much for diving into that and, and really being so accurate and telling it like it is, because it really is so important for us to, um, to make sure that our students feel safe enough to be able to come and report. And if we're sensationalizing it, they might not see themselves um, in that. Um, and Cynthia, so, so to that, would you share a little bit about, you know, what makes it hard for the student, right? So why might the student not come forward if we've sensationalized this crime um, in our communities? If they're under the impression that they're going to be taken, if you will, like in a movie, um, then they don't recognize the subtlety of their partner asking them to do them a favor and have sex with their friend, or you need to earn money uh, because I owe money for something. So it has to be more nuanced that they understand anything that is preventing them from living their life and consenting, and we haven't even gotten into consent yet, um, is an important thing. So it's not that you're not going to be at school, um, and it isn't that if this isn't someone is a stranger, most of the time, probably 98%, they at least know them. And almost 41% is familial trafficking in the U.S. Yeah. 
Thank you, Cynthia. Monica, you talked about in um, this last um, slide that we were on about this, the students showing warning signs. Um, and and we, as, as those who are working with educators and staff, if we don't see those warning signs that you so eloquently talked about just a minute ago, um, then we've missed it. And we've actually made it harder to identify those students. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna go to this slide, which I think is um, helpful for us again. Um, to be able to look at these images. And as you guys have all three talked about, you know, what human trafficking really looks like um, may be some of these images. So um, uh, Monica, you know, the this image on the left upper is, is a student online and on social media. Speak a little bit to those red flags that an educator might see or in the classroom or hear of, you know, in earshot from a social media um, example, um, if you will. Uh, yes, Ashley. So when I look at that image, I think of how social media has provided numerous ways for us to communicate and engage, but also how traffickers have used this medium to manipulate and vulner our vulnerable individuals, such as our teens, to gain that trust and also to facilitate um, illegal activities. Um, the anonymity that social media offers um, amplifies that danger. Um, as a former school counselor, I saw many instances where teens were contacted uh, anonymously through social media apps and catfished. Um, you could see how they were groomed and later threatened um, to control students. And so through preventive lessons um, that counselors give and teachers give, a lot of these reports came through the school counselor's office that we were able to support these, these teens. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, Charisma um, or Cynthia, either one of you, you know, vulnerability is one of the things that we absolutely know that traffickers are exploiting, right? And so the images on the upper right um, of a student who has a teddy bear, right? That, that vulnerability. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of those vulnerabilities that, um, that definitely um, you make it so that someone um, may actually be um, at risk for trafficking. Well, we've seen um, in schools really the first vulnerability is is really the age of a child, right? We're talking about um, the development, and um, you know it's easier to manipulate simply because they have the lack of maturity, um, you know, lack of life experience, and so. Um, what we know is that oftentimes exploitation comes through um, the grooming of uh, through a relationship and um, countering that relationship can be really difficult because it presents in a number of ways. Um, it could be platonic through friendship, um, even as young as children that we're seeing uh, holding that teddy bear, even through gaming. Right. So um, anywhere where where children can be interacting with folks, whether it is in person or especially online, um, creates that could create an environment where their vulnerability, they just don't know what they don't know. And if there's a bad actor out there who is taking full advantage of, of that lack of life experience, um, they will tell that child whatever it need, they need to tell them in order for that child to eventually gain some form of trust to then begin a conversation 
where they don't even realize they're being manipulated. And so those situations, um, again, really what we're talking about when we're talking about exploitation is the power imbalance, usually between an adult um, and a child. And so um, those of us adults really understanding, again, how easily these things can happen, whether it's quickly or over time through the grooming, um, learning the warning signs and understanding the vulnerabilities that certainly put our children at risk. Yeah, excellent. That was so good, Charisma. And I think that, you know, all of this that we've just shared and our panelists have shared with you who are watching and listening really sets the the ground and the foundation for you now to have understood what trafficking is, right? Forced labor or sex trafficking. And then for us to be able to talk a little bit about what it really looks like versus what it doesn't look like from a sensationalism perspective. And now what we're going to do is we're actually going to talk about the need, right? In the beginning polls, we saw that many of you um, said that you haven't noticed this on your school campuses, that you haven't noticed it necessarily in family or friends or colleagues or heard of it. Um, and so that really helps us, um, as we know um, for sure, um, from our data sources, the National Trafficking Hotline, as well as the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, have very clearly shared with us through data that there are over 32 million cyber tips at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children of child sexual abuse material, child abuse, sextortion, right? All the things that both Monica and Charisma and Cynthia and all of them are talking about as well as the, the National Trafficking Hotline is sharing with us that there are incidents in all 50 states um, across the United States. So if we know that to be true from the data, then we also know as educators there is a need, right? The need to actually make sure that prevention education happens um, in, the, in the classroom. The other piece that we also know around the need is that we now have 23 states out of 50 that have state mandates for prevention education to actually happen for training of teachers as well as education of students. So that also points to this need that we understand has to happen across the United States in order for us to truly protect our students. And this is a quote that um, at Three Strands we talk about often, it's easier to build strong children than repair broken men. And Frederick Douglass, obviously we know, was such an amazing advocate um, for, for education and knowledge um, as he believed that knowledge was power and really lived lifted up and empowered people to, um, to understand and um, to be able to keep themselves safe. And so when we talk about this, I'd love for our panelists to, to talk about the importance of prevention, right? So Cynthia, if you would share with us the importance of prevention and not just um, prevention sort of umbrella term, but really as it shows here, primary and, and secondary and tertiary. Well, I think what's important to remember is that despite the fact that we think maybe no one in our school is uh, a potential victim, uh, we have to think about, you need to educate everyone. Everyone has to be on the same page. And sometimes I'll have students even say to me, I'm too sophisticated for this to happen to me. And in that case, I always say, okay, what about your little brother? What about your niece or nephew? And so we wanted the primary prevention is for everyone, everyone in the school, not just a select group. And then secondary prevention is looking to identify um, victims, someone that may have experienced that and how we're going to respond to them. And then lastly, but not least, is the tertiary uh, tier. 
that is long-term support for those individuals who have experienced trafficking. Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. And Monica, you know, as you think about, um, you know, and all of you who are listening, right, LEAs, local education agencies across the United States, and we know this is happening, we know um, the issue, we understand the problem, but now we need to be able to solve it. And so um, working along nonprofits, um, working along those who have been doing this for a long time, share us a little bit with us about your experience of um, within the district of what it means to work alongside a nonprofit to be able to do this good work. Uh, yes. Um, so Socorro ISD um, was in need of a curriculum that we could provide from kinder to 12. Um, the state mandated that um, we would have prevention and awareness of school age human trafficking to all educators um, here in Texas. And so that's where we wanted to, we started doing our research and became, came across Protect um, because of the development of a K-12 program. We think it's very necessary to start early um, with our students um, and giving them the skills they need to, to protect themselves. Um, in addition, we wanted to be able to also provide that information to our, our teachers and our support staff and parents. And so protect having this amazing curriculum, um, we were able to um, partner up with them. Um, this is our second year with protect and only good things to say. Thanks, Monica, so much. Charisma, um, you know, I know that you have been doing this work for um, over a decade and maybe even two now, huh? Um, but speak to us a little bit about that relationship and the importance. You know, I think that schools sometimes think we can go this alone, but you know, I'm in San Diego with 41 um, districts that it is not an easy feat to go alone. So can you speak a little bit to that too? Sure, absolutely. Um, Three Strands has been uh, instrumental and a, a crucial partner, really an essential partner in the prevention work that we are, uh, have here in the County of San Diego. Um, and as Ashley mentioned, we've been partnering, I want to say, definitely more than seven years now. And what has made it, I guess, easy to implement. I mean, there's no such thing as an easy implementation, but when you have a strong partner such as Three Strands, especially during the pandemic, when we needed the option to be able to go virtual, right, to, still, to, to still continue the necessary work, um, especially during the pandemic when, where children were online more than ever, those options, whether virtual, in-person, um, you know, it, it, accommodating whatever um, LEAs needed and uh, three strands being able really to step up and come through, through their coordination, uh, through their ease of implementation of the curriculum, the training, not only for students, but for staff, especially the training of a protocol. What exactly do you do when um, you have suspicion of or when you actually have identified um, a student who is a victim of trafficking? And so the partnership is um, essential if we are going to be able to address it on a, a more comprehensive Comprehensive level. And I also want to add, even at the community level, they have an incredible training uh, for parents and caregivers as well. And so not only what is being taught in the schools, but also those adult supporters, the other people who care about children, it really needs to be taken a look at from whole, whole child and whole community. Oh, thanks so much, Charisma. 
Um, so let's let's think about the people who are um, watching today and who watch afterwards. Um, and you know, I think Monica, you you talked about um, the counselor's role, right? And um, how can our administrators, our counselors, our SROs, our teachers, our even our yard duty staff, our bus drivers, what are the ways that they can get involved? And um, and how at Socorro ISD have um, they gotten involved? Um, so here at Socorro ISD, we make human trafficking. Um, uh, prevention a mandate. Um, so our it, it goes through our school counselors. Um, we are presenting annually um, to all teachers, support staff, um, everybody on the campus um, to make sure that we get that information out. It is also a mandated lesson for our students K through 12. Every year they will be hearing um, on how they can protect themselves. Um, so it's been a mandate. Um, so we have also our community, we have our parent liaisons out there um, giving that information, holding parenting sessions where our school counselors are preventing, uh, presenting um, information on, on how to keep um, their, their child safe. Thanks so much. And Cindy, you talk often about um, bus drivers. Um, share with us a little bit about why, um, as Monica talks about, you know, an entire campus being trained. Speak to us a little bit about that, why it's important. Yeah, my favorite are bus drivers because oftentimes students are on a bus for an hour and they have a relationship with that person driving the bus. The bus driver always sees who picks them up and whether they have kind of anxiety about getting off the bus and similarly, who's putting them on the bus in the morning. So if they understand that this isn't someone actually missing, but watch for those nuances. Everything is about relationships. Also, there's not a cafeteria worker anywhere that doesn't know who's hungry. And oftentimes traffickers starve the kids because they won't feed them until they do what they want. So there are all those components, um, certainly custo um, custodians, as well as maintenance people out, maybe mowing the lawn, see different perspectives. It's imperative that teachers know and that uh, all the school staff does, but all the ancillary help on a campus is really important, another set of eyes, because it truly takes the village. Yeah, excellent. So it really is about um, having that circle of protection around our school campuses, which obviously is in our communities. Um, and I'm reflecting back on your answers in the very beginning of our panel around you know, what you're actually seeing in San Diego and in, uh, you know, in, at Socorro ISD and in Texas, you know, and as you talk about that, and we think about what you guys talked about just, you know, on this last prevention slide in particular, it really is that protection around students and communities that is so important and um, that we understand our role um, from the um, educators and administrators as well. Um, so we're gonna go, this is a perfect segue into best practices. Um, so we've talked about the issue, we've talked about the need, and now let's talk about the best practices. And this is actually a little bit of what some, of, you know, I know you guys have talked about, but let's go deeper into this um, specifically, because if we understand the impact that's happening in our communities and in our schools, and um, we want to make sure that we use best practice. And, and when we talk about best practice, 
um, that could be all over the board, but we, I know that the three of you um, absolutely positively understand what best practice means. Um, and so I want us to, to really, maybe Cynthia, you can kick us off and that's um, Charisma mentioned, which I'm so glad you did Charisma, the protocol piece. But Cynthia, walk us through these sort of four pronged approach for us so that those on the call and those who will listen after can really understand um, as we talk about elevating best practices so that we use them. Happy to, Ashley. So protocol, what is that? It's a multidisciplinary team that comes together in your area. It can be just a school district or it can be an entire county. So you want to have law enforcement, you want to have mental health practitioners, substance abuse folks. You want everybody in addition to the school to be involved in what are you going to do if you identify someone. Everyone has to know what their role is in that. And it's critical that you hit while the Iron is hot, if you will. When you notice something, you need to respond immediately. The training that we speak of, we call it Human Trafficking 101, 102, and 103. Now, a lot of people say to me, oh, Cynthia, I've been trained on that before. You haven't been trained our way. And the reason I say it like that is that we are very specific about the language that you use, as well as um, how you're going to present that. So we want to say, what is it? Then we want to talk about how we get there, the brain part of it, um, how someone has adverse childhood experiences and that contributes. And then we also want to talk about what to do, which is going back to the protocol. The education we speak of is we have K-12 lessons broken down K-3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, 12. And you get the whole cadre whenever you have our curriculum so that you're able to see those lessons and I always suggest that if you're working with special ed students who have IEPs or 504s, you might want to look at a variety. Uh, we don't dictate. It. They're all age appropriate. But I like to also remind people that they should be developmentally appropriate for your group. Um, also, that includes activities in the education. It's not just a talking head. <laughs> we have kids write um, scenarios. We have them talk about scenarios, but we also have them write safety plans, which I think is critically important. And then the research comes with giving pre and post surveys. Um, everyone, adults as well as students, all do pre and post surveys. And while it might seem superfluous to some, it's really not because it tells us, are we actually teaching what we think we're teaching? And are people learning something? Because the whole secret to this is, we're planting seeds. We're not going to stop everything. But if someone can pull on that knowledge that they learned through the curriculum later, they'll say, oh, my goodness, that's what they were talking about. So I think that's critically important. Um, Charisma or Monica, anything else you guys would like to share about this best practice of protocol, training, education and research? I think uh, for us here in San Diego, the best practice when we were thinking about um, capacity building as well as sustainability right from the very beginning <clears throat> was really the understanding the sequence of how things need to roll out, especially um, in different uh, districts, small to large, extra large, was you know the creation of a protocol that everyone really understands what is expected. Um, and then that teachers, uh, the adults in a, a school community, they first need to be trained 
because in case uh, the student is the one to make a disclosure, they understand already in the most trauma-informed ways on how to best support a child if, again, if there is a suspicion or an actual disclosure. And then really, again, understanding the data, um, having the data drive um, uh, how we inform our current policies and practices. Um, the model that we have here in San Diego when it comes to sustainability is to actually um, develop uh, an employee of the school or employee of the district where they become like the subject matter expert in anti-human trafficking. They're familiar not only with the national resources, but more importantly, I think even the local resources, right, of who can actually support this child as well as their family. And so um, that sustainability, because once a grant ends or, or an initiative per se ends, there continues to be someone who can continue support to support the school in continuing the prevention work, right? That way it's not a one time drop in the bucket, but it truly is incorporated or integrated into um, the school culture. That's an excellent, excellent point, Charisma. That, and, and that's something that I know it, um, for us at Three Strands, that that piece is really vital, as you say, because we want to make sure that students are protected for the time that they come in kindergarten 12, but then we have our kid, kids will come in again, right? Our next kindergarten class enters. And so this has to be something that continues to happen year over year. It cannot be a one and done um, assembly. It can't be a one and done thing. It has to be integrated as you say. Monica, anything else you'd like to share on this before we move on this? I think you just touched on uh, uh, what I wanted to share is just starting early, starting um, the, as early as kindergarten. Um, just can you imagine if we give this lesson every year and what skill set a student would have when they graduate high school? And so just starting so early kinder and every year giving that, giving them that information. Yeah. And you know, this actually helps me think about something, Monica, that's so true. You know, oftentimes we get asked the question, kindergarten, really? Almost sort of like with that question mark at the end. But I think you guys have just spoken to it. And that is that when we talk about, which I'll actually move to our next slide, when we talk about um, how do we truly protect our youth, we don't want to be pointing to each other and saying, hey, it's your responsibility, it's your responsibility, it's your responsibility. Rather, we want to be able to actually say it is all, all of our responsibility from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade when that student launches and chooses whatever their next path may be. Um, comprehensively, we need to make sure that that happens. Uh, and I think that that question I just referred to is that, you know, kindergarten really age appropriately, I think Cynthia talked about that, that age appropriateness is, is really important. Human trafficking for us, we know at Three Strands, the term and, and the concept comes in middle school where we know a Across the nation, where we're talking about abuse and the forms of abuse, that's the right place appropriately for human trafficking to be talked about. But as Monica said, it's really important when the kids are in kindergarten to start talking about things about protection and inner voice and what does that mean? And, and that those things are also important. So thank you guys so much for just really elevating this conversation around best practices and um, and more importantly, sort of, you know, that we should be looking at the whole child as well as the whole campus, right? Our, all of our kids. Um, so as I look at this slide and we think about com comprehensive training for adults, we've talked a little bit about everybody on this slide, maybe bus, dri oh, bus drivers are there, Cynthia. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that 
um, let's talk about um, as it relates to like really the, the nuts and bolts. How do um, how does an administrator get started? Like, what does that actually look like? Um, and and how might I bring this comprehensive training to the folks that are on this slide? So Cindy, you want to jump in because I love to talk about this. Okay, there okay, go for every it. point of entry possible that you can think of. Some schools come to me and they only want to train their staff. So I say, okay, we'll start there. But always I want to include everybody else. Sometimes parents come to me after they've seen a parent caregiver. Um, they say, how do I get this in my school? And I say, you go to your administration and suggest that to them. Similarly, there will be teachers who will understand how important this is. So we can enter from any place and we have a variety of ways that people can be trained online, virtually, in person. We really, um, I think we pride ourselves in meeting people where they are and providing the training. And then there's rarely a person who's trained on one level, like just their adults, that doesn't come back and say, okay, now we understand why it's so important to do it all. And um, so that's that's what I think. Yeah, no, that's great, Cynthia. I really appreciate that. And I think the other thing, um, Monica and Charisma, you both are super aware. The CDC has um, standards as well as the Office of Trafficking in Persons um, through uh, the Health and Human Services um, Department federally. And so those standards are something that's really important as administrators um, are looking and counselors and teachers at bringing the best practice of um, human trafficking prevention to schools. So, you know, when I think about that, um, those standards, um, I think about the themes that can be discussed and um, within kindergarten um, through 12th grade. And so on this um, iPad, or a big phone that this person's holding, there are a number of different sort of themes. So with each of you, I'd love for you just briefly to talk a little bit about maybe why it's important that we talk about these um, these themes and these concepts. Um, so definitely um, some of the concepts um, in looking through the K through 12 curriculum and, and listening to my counselors um, when they're delivering these lessons um, in the lower grades, you know, just recognizing that inner voice um, and determining who that trusted adult is um, in, in, in those early, early age, uh, grades. And then in the upper grades, um, the personal boundaries and healthy relationships that we need to see in the middle school and high school. Um, Great, great lessons um, to for our middle school and high school students. Yeah, Charisma, anything on there that jumps out at you as well? Sure. And, you know, it's not only just about mandated reporting, right? When we talk about child abuse and neglect, oftentimes um, when I work with children who have actually experienced um, human trafficking, there were very many, many red flags, right, that were occurring in a child's life prior to maybe even the first incident um, of human trafficking. And so understanding um, the spectrum of how, you know, even grooming happens, whether it is someone in their family, whether it is someone they eventually become familiar with, but it is through that relationship uh, that children need to be able to discern what is a healthy relationship versus what's an unhealthy relationship and teaching them to listen to their bodies, listen to um, what, what they're feeling 
kind of as um, that alert to say something is making me feel uncomfortable. I need to seek out a, a trusted adult, whether that is a parent, a neighbor, someone at school, the bus driver, um, again, but they that they feel safe enough and with education empowered to be able to put words right to what it is they're feeling. And I can't stress enough uh, the education that also needs to take place around um, online safety, as well as safety planning. And the con uh, conversation of prevention cannot happen early enough. Uh, because oftentimes I would work with families, you know, and they were like, I just wasn't sure how to talk to my child. I didn't think that was appropriate. And you know what education and training does, especially, you know, with three strands, is they give you those conversation starters. How do I have these conversations with my child who's maybe only eight years old, and they like to play games, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's really to start to pick out, that seems really weird or off to me. I don't feel good about what that person is asking me and then go seek um, a, a trusted adult. And so it's that seeking um, behavior, right, for help that we want to be able to build over a child's uh, life, uh, over the course of their uh, young childhood or young adulthood. Yeah, no, it's true. It, you know, it's when I think about it, Charisma, I think about the characteristics of a trusted adult. If a child doesn't know those, right, that really is exactly what you're talking about. They have to understand that, but be educated on it in order to be able to point to and feel comfortable and safe to go to that person. Thank you so much. Cynthia, this is a long list, but people can go back to it and refer to it. But I think, again, as we're in this best practices place, right, um, it speaks to primary and secondary prevention and the importance and obviously the concepts. Are there just a few things as we, I know we want to make sure and leave time for questions too, but are there a few things, maybe just one thing that you want to point out about this slide that, that you think is important for people to understand? Well, as I train individuals uh, around the country, one of the things they say, they like how we talk about different kinds of touch. Now that's only in the primary grade, but like what's safe and what's unsafe, or also things like mindfulness. So we, we teach mindfulness across the spectrum because when someone begins to feel anxious, they sure to shut down. So if you learn how to use some of those techniques to stay calm and to listen, and I can't overemphasize personal boundaries. It is never too young to learn about them. And it seems to be a lifelong practice. Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. And I think the other piece of this is, you know, don't feel overwhelmed as you as you listen or as your administrator, teacher, wherever you sit in your role that, you know, know that for us at Three Strands and many of those who are, um, use best practices, which we've talked about, which um, will have done focus groups around, you know, what is the reality of training and the time that PD can really be? Um, and during a duty day, how do we actually get this curriculum rolled out? You know, for us at Three Strands, we've actually um, made it so it weaves into all concepts and curriculum that already exists to make it easier for the teachers and the counselors and, and the staff. Um, so at the bottom of that slide, you see time for um, what it takes to be able to roll this out. And, and you know, really um, for LEAs, um, we're here to be able to help this be best practice happen because we want our kids to be protected. And um, so for these next slides, I'm just going to jump in here and, and do a little bit of um, uh, overview, and then we'll get to our questions and our answers for all of you. I think it's really important as all three of our panelists, Monica and Charisma and Cynthia, have talked about data, data, data. We don't know if we're actually having the impact that we want to have unless we measure, right? We build, 
we measure, we learn. Um, and that is something that um, we think is incredibly important. And so as we measure, we measure from a quantitative perspective where we look at pre and post to be able to measure, are we actually, are people understanding what we are um, actually training, um, not only for staff, as you see, um, but asking specific questions to make sure that we can measure our people learning what they should be learning within the context of our training. Um, and then also measuring our students, right? When it comes to our elementary, middle, and high school students, are they indeed learning what we want them to learn? Um, and um, are those those questions that we're asking age appropriate? Are they understanding them? Um, do we need to tweak them if not? Um, and then the last thing that I think is really important is qualitative data. And, um, and this really, Cynthia and I chatted about this earlier today. And I think this is um, important because as we measure what we're doing in the world as a nonprofit, um, it is important for us to measure behavior change. And, and the reason for that is if we want indeed for our communities to be protected and our children to be protected, then we must actually change our behavior. That means we change our language, right? All the things that we started and we've talked about through this whole presentation from sensationalism to the issue and the problem, to best practices, to um, data now. Um, it is about our, our teachers, our counselors, our staff changing their behavior so that that student understands how to protect themselves. Are they increasing their knowledge and awareness? And, and at Three Stones, we did a study to specifically look at our qualitative data and analyze it um, so that we could say with 96% confidence, yes, behavior change is happening. And I think that's a really important best practice to, to occur. So um, I will um, actually end on this with um, resource page next, and we'll open it up for questions. But this really um, has been an, a great opportunity for us to be able to come and share with you um, what Martin Luther King has for a long time said, which is an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. And so we need to be able to look at all of our students in a classroom and our communities um, to be able to truly look at the problem of human trafficking and how do we address it? How do we do that with best practice so that we um, protect our kids? Um, and so this next one is just the resources. Um, we are happy to um, be a resource for you if you are watching today or you watch afterwards um, and um, encourage you to um, actually check those resources out. We have a video um, that we actually can play, but I actually think I'd rather, um, depending on where we are on the questions, and um, let me just go to this next, uh, that's back at the beginning of who we are. And um, let me get to the questions and see if we've got any there that I can, all right, great. So we've got a lot of questions. So let me do these questions. And if we have time, we'll play the video because we do have a really wonderful video. So, um, all right. I work with a lot of international students and want to ensure their safety. What should I look out for? Um, what are the warning signs that human trafficking might be happening and or people might be in danger of being trafficked? So, um, Monica, you want um, to take a, a stab at that or um, charisma? I'm um, sure just some of the red flags, um, especially working with students, just, you know, their attendance or absences, tardiness, um, you know, how they're coming into school, um, definitely being trauma informed, um, you know, looking into those kind of warning signs um, with your students to see if they are, um, and then having those connections with students. Charisma? 
And I would say, you know, really um, paying attention to our students in terms of uh, their behavior, right? So we will have students who sometimes it's like a complete 180. Um, and so we're like, it's it's a big red flag, right? Especially if they're changing clothes, um, even the type of clothing or materials they have, especially if they're expensive. And we're familiar with their families that we know they're like, my goodness, they're working like two, three jobs to support their child and how is it that they now have this expensive, um, you know, new iPhone or some new jewelry that normally they wouldn't have worn even fingernails, right? Even getting their nails done. So when I say like, sometimes the obvious, it's like right there in our face. If we can notice that big of a change, we just want to, you know, uh, engage in, in conversation, right? Not be accusatory, but again, to really understand what is um, the living situation like? Has something changed? But also, um, if children are running away or you hear about them running away, that's a big red flag in terms of how are they meeting their most basic, basic needs, right? Of food, shelter, sometimes even transportation. Um, so we, we want to pay attention to the child's, again, um, uh, how they're doing in general, their grades, you know, things like that, because it just could be that behavior change that clues us in that something may be happening at home or wherever it is they're living, and that we might need to intervene earlier rather than kind of wait for that big red flag to happen, but start the conversation, right, that I'm here for you and we can help. Great. Thanks so much, Charisma. That's excellent. Cynthia, how do you see or notice it in daily interactions with students? So, so Charisma, this is a perfect segue. So Charisma gave just a few um, great examples. Um, can you elaborate? How do you see or notice in daily interactions what this might look like? Well, I think we need to look at the affect of the student. Obviously, you get to know them. And that's one of the reasons why educators are so important because they're really connected to students and they can see if they look sad or scared or very, very tired or hungry. Any of those kinds of manifestations are clues, not necessarily that it's trafficking, but that something's up. And that's when we can increase our support to students and be sure that they know they can trust that they can come to us if they have questions. Yeah. And I know that, you know, some of um, our staff have said in those daily interactions, it may be actually overhearing a conversation, right? So in that daily interaction with students, you overhear another conversation about a student saying, yeah, I met, you know, this guy online, he's, you know, going to take me to dinner. And he and you know, as the interaction goes back and forth, he's a little bit older, and we're going to meet here. And then we're, you know, it's kind of, I don't want my parents to know, right, even that kind of conversation, that's a daily interaction between students that you might overhear is something also that you might notice. Um, the next question, do traffickers try to separate the child from their families? And so um, certainly isolation is definitely a part of um, the process because uh, they certainly want to um, keep the children away from anyone that could be a helper, right? And so, um, and again, this happens over time um, in terms of building that, you know, 
sadly, an unhealthy relationship to make the child believe that because whatever is happening, whatever they have done or have forced to um, to do, that no one else will care about them because now they've crossed this line, right? That And they feel like I can never go back because now I've done this terrible, horrible thing that someone is going to judge me on and, and think I'm dirty or I'm ugly or I'm no longer worthy. And that really does take place in this isolation, where they're really just filling the child, um, their their minds with so many things. Um, but also, this is kind of where we begin to see the tardies or the truancies, because it is in that isolation where they are cementing, right? That that belief in that child that no one is going to care for them the way that they do. And if they go out and try to seek help, how us good helpers may respond. And this is where it's really important that we understand trauma, the impact of trauma, and how trafficking can really manifest. And, and it's different amongst any any child. And so when a child is trying to reach out for help, it's important that we are non-judgmental, that we mm. are being, um, we're being asking open questions. We're relaying true caring um, because we have to remember what it is, you know, through coercion or sometimes even force and manipulation that traffickers and buyers, even for that matter, are again, influencing our children. And so uh, them understanding this this isn't okay or i don't want to do this anymore and no they can always come and ask for help cuz it's it's that notion i can't ever cross back is what can really keep our children in that um dangerous situation yeah that's so so true charisma that you know that that shame or that fear or that place where mm -hmm. a student feels like i don't know where to go and that's why it's so important as you guys have as have talked about is that trusted adult and that our schools ha have the folks who are trusted adults and that that student really feels that way um you know i think one of this next question can you address the reasons that students are being enrolled in school even while being trafficked wouldn't it be easier to not enroll them and can you address this in a virtual school environment monica i don't know if you want to <laughs> I, I think you um, had mentioned that earlier, Charisma. Um, would you like to share your experience? Sure. <laughs> Sorry about that. And yeah. so, you know, as educators, right, we have to remember that children have a right um, to an education. And although I, I think I do understand what it is you're asking, right, because it's the risk of introducing, um, you know, possible recruiter or someone into a school. And again, I think... Um, you won't know, you really will not know anything until a child is enrolled in your school and people begin to interact with them, right? And, and their supports and things like that. And we also want to remember to not like villainize um, a recruiter, especially remembering that they're children. We never know really the reason why a child becomes a recruiter. A lot of times what I found in my experience working with children, it's because now in order to protect themselves, the trafficker has said, you know, well, you need to go recruit two more students. Um, otherwise, you know, something really horrible can happen, right? So we see this coercion. And so that judgmental piece, we really have to be aware of that morality piece, we really have to be aware of, um, you know, in our own biases, because that could really prevent us from um, protecting a student, 
or, you know, giving them help, uh, identifying them even. Because remember, a lot of times children don't even recognize that they are a victim of exploitation until someone like a trusted adult or someone who has been trained explains to them, this is what exploitation is. And this is never supposed to happen to anyone. And as a child, it is never, ever your fault, right, that this is happening. And so um, I think we really need to be aware of those biases. And um, the protocols are important because, right, if we do suspect there is a potential recruiter on campus, we want to be able to have the safest approach, not only for the student, but all other students really on campus and knowing who do you contact immediately if you have those suspicions of a recruiter. Yeah, it's excellent, Chris. And that goes back to, again, best practice, why everyone who's listening to this protocol is so important, right? Because as Charisma said, there are recruiters sometimes at the campuses, and we need to be able to know who is it within the district that is that has been decided um, as the person who will um, address um, the situation, right? And that protocol will actually map that out really clearly. The next question is great. Um, I'm curious if parents are uncomfortable with teachers or schools sharing this curriculum with their child, or if generally parents are on board and, and in support of it. Um, uh, Cynthia or Monica, you want to take a I'd like to go ahead and take a um, yeah. answer that question. Um, so originally when we um, were coming to present this information um, to the students and to the staff, uh, we went through some um, parent committees. Um, we spoke to three co parent committees um, that vetted um, protect and all three committees um, that included parents, teachers, students, um, board members. Um, we are a school district of, of about 50,000. Um, all of them were on board um, in getting this information out. A lot of them did have some questions, you know, um, if we were introducing the word human trafficking to the younger uh, students, um, you know, K through two. Um, but when we uh, mentioned that that word does not come in until the later grades, um, most parents were on board. Um, we were able to get consent um, to the majority to provide these lessons to our students um, from most of our parents. Um, I want to say maybe less than 5% um, have um, issues with the lessons. Um, but when we talk to them over the phone and have meetings, um, they are giving that permission um, for us to deliver those lessons to their child. Yeah, and I think that anecdotally, you know, we have heard at Three Strands over the years, you know, sometimes parents will ask questions, which is great. But when they understand that we are, you know, empowering students to understand their inner voice, to protect themselves, the characteristics of a trusted adult, the parent will be, if the parent is a trusted adult, they will be their first trusted adult, right? So the parents really have been on board with our Protect program, and as, as Monica just said, right, because that's an important piece of keeping their kids safe. Um, next question, um, do young Young people use the term trafficking. How should we talk to students about it? Could you give an example of how a school staff member could ask a student about their suspicion? I'll go ahead and take that question. So um, no, <laughs> our children do not actually use uh, the word trafficking, um, right? They, they know that if a child is using trafficking, it means that they've actually been trained, right? Which is great because they, they know this term. Um, when engaging with children, as I mentioned earlier, it's very conversational, um, right? It cannot be accusatory. We can't be using words that they may not understand quite yet. And so, um, you know, asking questions like, 
is there anything that you've ever had to do that you didn't want to do, but felt like you had to do it anyway? What, what was that? And how did you feel after that? And, you know, who was that, you know, kind of thing. And so um, the conversational piece is critical. And again, as I mentioned earlier, those conversation starters, whether it's for teachers, the bus drivers, um, the after school teachers, the providers, being able to just get to the the core that the child is somehow being harmed and coerced or manipulated in such a way that there is fear that they are afraid that something will happen if they don't do something for someone else. And that really is, is the concept of exploitation. It's where mm -hmm. the child feels, if I don't do this, something really bad is going to happen. And so again, you know, it's that uh, power, uh, power imbalance, right, of an adult taking full advantage of a child and them not understanding if you don't, they don't know that if you don't do this, nothing may happen to you or you have the power to go seek help. And so again, you know, yes, they don't use the word trafficking, but there are other ways uh, to talk to them about, uh, find out what they're experiencing. Yeah, no, and that, I know we've gone just a few minutes over, but I'm gonna go back one page because the next question asked about, um, and Cynthia, we talked about this, is um, that someone has asked here, there are two questions that I will end with. One is, um, uh, around consent. Um, and so let me make sure that I get to, are there any consent um, workshops recommended for schools or educational organizations? So I put the resources up um, so that that person can get to you know ours, but maybe you just touch on consent here. And then the last question is what happens to traffickers too? And is there a deterrent? So we can touch that after consent. In terms of consent, we always have a letter in both English and Spanish that can go out to parents. Um, so that they can uh, either agree to it or opt out. So in some states, they have to sign that consent in order for anything to present, be presented, like in Texas, whereas in California, we have passive consent. So I just use those two because those states are represented on the panel. But we never want to trick a parent into not having them know what their student is doing. So we're always happy to share information to do a little training with them. Sometimes three strands uh, staff does that. Sometimes the school staff does it. So consent's important um, just by virtue of being transparent. And in terms and then, of terms, oh, oh hang, hang on, Cynthia. I'm gonna just hang on for a second. Um, um, Charisma, I think that there are two levels of consent. So thank you for answering that piece. I'm not sure if the question was around um, consent um, um, that we cover in our curriculum or if it was consent of a parent. So I think addressing both would be great from you guys. So either Monica or Charisma, you guys can do um, the consent that we cover in curriculum would be great. Monica? I'll let you go ahead and. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in the curriculum, right, consent really comes around um, like the personal boundaries piece that children, again, understanding um their own bodies, their own space, and that you can always say no. Now, it's easy enough, right, to teach to say no, but when a child is in a certain situation, and it could be any type of situation, whether it's, you know, can I hug you? Can I play with you? You know, those types of simple concepts, all the way up to 
where um, children could be in, you know, relationships and maybe they're trying to negotiate um, certain things, not even just sex, right? So it's really important for children to understand their inner voice and the power that they have and that even if their consent is violated, they still have the right, right, to go seek help and they can still always take their consent back. Because, uh, you know, this is very can be very complicated and very complex because, again, trafficking takes place through a relationship. And um, that perpetrator, that abuser, that trafficker, that buyer, they certainly leverage that relationship against that child. Um, but that consent piece is, is really where empowerment for a child comes from, whatever age, because that's the foundation that also right leads into adulthood to be saying, no, that is not okay with me and I'm not going to stand for that and I'm going to seek help. And, you know, we're going to rectify this situation somehow, but it, it really comes from learning um, what consent is, how it's given and, um, you know, and even the power in taking it back. Yeah, no, thanks, Christmas. So now we've, for that question, if it was one or the other, you have that button, both of them covered. And then last question, um, Cynthia, you were going to answer, which is, is there a deterrent? Um, what happens to the trafficker? Well, there are really strict things that happen to the trafficker, but first they have to be prosecuted. So when we do our job to make sure that we're reporting things and talking about precisely when we report to child welfare, what you're seeing that make you think that, you don't have to prove anything, but you have to give them the information to go on. And then it's up to the prosecutor. Now there are federal laws. There are also state laws. There are um, laws that have to do with tribal associations, they're very complex. And remember that a district attorney or whomever is prosecuting it has to have a reason to have enough information to go on to do the prosecution. Sometimes people get life in prison if this has occurred often enough. More likely it's 10 to 15 years. I think um, Ashley knows a lot more about prosecution having interviewed people that are actually in prison for the crime, um, but yes, now, whether or not that's really deterrent, considering how much money people make, that's up to you to say, does it really deter them? Because at this point, in my personal opinion, we don't prosecute enough. Um, and I, so I would always like to see prosecution increase to stop people and give them a, re a deterrent. And if yeah, I can just add good. one more thing, yeah. Ashley, it's okay. Nope. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can't forget, right, the other piece, which is demand. We're talking mm -hmm. about the buyers, right? So yeah. not only people who traffic, but really this crime is built on those who buy, whether it is labor, whether it is sex, it is that demand. If there was no, no one wanting to buy sex, wanting to buy, you know, illegal labor, there would be no need of a supply of victims. So I just always want to remind folks about that. It is not just about the trafficker in our culture. We have to stop the demand. Yeah, no, it's so good, Charisma. In fact, um, Cynthia mentioned I, I had the opportunity to interview um, multiple men um, who were incarcerated, and um, and one of the things um, that whether they themselves were traffickers or buyers or um, had family members um, in this 
um, this opportunity of questions was um, the demand is what came up. And that if if there were no buyers or there were um, for either forced labor or sex trafficking, that um, we would have a world free from human trafficking, which um, is what we all want. Um, and that actually is the vision of Three Strands Global Foundation. So um, we are done. We know we've gone over, but this has been a fabulous panel. Um, I know our video we've got um, is about four minutes. If you want to watch that, I'm happy to play it. You guys can, can watch it or um, Diane, you can play it. But I just want to thank those of you who have been here, those of you who watch afterwards. Um, please let us be a resource for you so that we can protect our children, that we can make sure um, that we have a world free from human trafficking. And um, so thank you very much. I didn't realize that human trafficking happened here in our own hometown, Fort Worth, Texas. Who would have thought? I did not know that children in elementary school was being exploited. And I always had the mind that I wanted to protect the children, but I didn't know what they were going through. Human trafficking exists in every community. It is not just a problem that happens overseas, and we need to end it. Three Strands Global Foundation is on a path and a mission to make sure that that happens. And the PROTECT program helps to keep communities safe. We make sure that our teachers and our students are educated and trained so that they can thrive. The biggest barrier to discussing human trafficking in schools is the denial that it's happening locally. Fort Worth is a human trafficking hub our students, as I say, are very naive and trusting. This PROTECT program provided safety for them so that they wouldn't inadvertently get into situations that were dangerous. With the PROTECT curriculum, I was able to make sure I gave the kids warning signs and things for them to look out for as they are growing up so that they will be protected from things that could happen. I like to think that they feel that they can they can speak up and have a voice now. Personal boundary skills, personal space, how to say no. And also I feel that I embrace that as well. And I, I model what I teach. Having a curriculum that was designed and had input from survivors of trafficking is so very helpful because I know they had experiences at the same age. And what is it as an educator that we missed? a child would have never gone into trafficking. It will make a difference in student engagement in the classroom, and it will ensure that their students are safe so that they can come to school every day and learn academics and be emotionally sound. More than half of our students are Spanish-speaking population. Having the curriculum in two languages assures that we are getting the message across in a way that they can understand. After the pandemic, we had to be adaptable. We had to actually adapt to kids not being in the classroom. And online safety, we knew, was really important. We saw numbers in the U.S. skyrocket of kids who were being exploited online. When we were doing the curriculum, one of the students indicated that someone was trying to uh, engage with her online, asked her questions about where she lived and how old she was. We got that shut down, you know, very, 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 very quickly. And, and that's because we just made the right intervention at the right time.
Every time that we have done a protect presentation, there has been at least one outcry. We were able to work with that student, get some services. They saw themselves in the PROTECT curriculum and felt comfortable enough to say, this is not right and let me tell somebody. The PROTECT program is more than awareness. It's really primary and secondary prevention. It's important that we build skills in our youth, in our children, that they understand and role play how to actually keep themselves safe and protected. When we focus on the children, then what happens is that not only are we protecting them from human trafficking and exploitation, but potentially from bullying and suicide. There's a lot of things that have come out of the PROTECT program being scaled throughout the United States. I believe that PROTECT is one of the best curriculums that I have ever taught. I feel like I'm giving them those tools that I wanted to give them, but I didn't have the foundation for it, I feel that it is going to save so many of our children, and I believe it is going to make a great impact on their life. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Ashley, for, for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa and Ed Webb, for Diane, also for all of your technical skills. We are so appreciative to be here, and we want to be a resource for anyone who is on the call or who listens afterwards. We want to protect our kids. Thank you so much, Monica and Charisma, for everything you do every single day, for being um, warriors in this um, with us and doing such a phenomenal job in your communities on keeping our students safe. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.